Hello, and welcome to Value-Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Yaroon Fendrig to discuss the challenges of making AI commercially viable. Yaroon is the Chief Technology Officer of ProofTech, an Australian technology startup specialising in the development of AI-driven software for damage detection and assessment for high-value assets. He has over 20 years' experience in video analytics for world-leading R&D labs and has over 25 patents in force. Yaroon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Genevieve. I've, I've listened to some episodes and they're very interesting, and I hope we can give the same value to your listeners. I hope so too. Many data scientists dream of using their skills to develop groundbreaking AI technology, but a few manage to translate their dreams into commercially viable products. To be honest, I suspect most data scientists haven't got the faintest idea of where to even begin about doing so. Yet, this is something you've managed to successfully achieve through your own startup, ProofTech. And that's something I'd really like to explore in this episode. However, for listeners who haven't come across ProofTech before, could you begin by telling us a bit about it and how it makes use of AI in its products? So uh, as you said, my, my background is in computer vision. So I've always been looking for problems to attack in that domain. And I found a co-founder who is not technical at all, uh, but had a problem basically with damages that needed to be detected. And so we joined forces to do that. And what we basically do technically, two key things here is we detect anomalies in our data sets. And those anomalies eventually are likely to correspond to damages, which is what uh, our users are interested in. But the second aspect to it, which is often overlooked, is we not only do we detect those anomalies, we try to project them back to the real world object, if you like. And to make it concrete, we do a lot of work with cars as assets. So, uh, and we monitor them over time. If we find an anomaly in one part of an image and next week we do it again, and we find an anomaly in a part of the image, we somehow need to say that's the same spot of the car. And we do a lot of work on that as well. So those are the, the key things uh, that our AI engines work. Now, my last count, I, I don't actually even know, but we have four or five neural networks plus some, some other more traditional computer vision techniques in our system. So there's a big pipeline where each part of it has a different task to fulfill. So it's not just one AI module that is being deployed. So it's four or five sequential, I assume, convolutional neural networks. That's correct. So there's different ways to acquire data, for example. So different networks are deployed for that. And eventually they all come together and go through the same process. You have to use different types of networks for different types of vehicles. So for example, for a car versus a motorbike. You could, but I don't think so. We haven't tried on motorbikes. You could specialize, but in the end, there is a power in having it more generic. And an interesting example here is, so we've been doing this from the start for the use case of cars. And when we started out, we actually were driving cars in, in our, on our own driveway. Okay. And we, we got a, a question from somebody, well, can you detect damage on infrastructure assets like mobile phone towers? 
well, it hasn't been made for that. But you know what? When we do this in our driveway, we actually take dents uh, on the fence. We don't do that anymore because we mask out the car at the moment. But that's how we know, yes, we can do that. Because in the end, it's an anomaly in the surface. And it's a very different use case. You can use the same model for that. If you have a big enough data set, and, and spoiler alert, usually in AI, you don't have that. But if you do, yes, then you can specialize in that and there would be a benefit. But when you have smaller data sets, it's actually better to use the same model for different purposes. I remember this was a couple of years ago reading, and I think this might be an urban myth, about one of the earliest neural networks, which was used for detecting American tanks versus enemy tanks. And apparently one of the reasons why it didn't work was because the images they had of the American tanks were all nice, clear images that were taken in good light and up close, whereas the images of the enemy tanks were at a distance in battle, et cetera, et cetera. Did you find when you first started building your neural networks that there were issues to do with where the photos of the cars were taken? No, but uh, on that topic, so what you say, I think is a true story. Okay. And in fact, yesterday, one of my staff members came with exactly that problem. We found out that we we put something in the neural networks. We we masked out the background uh, to focus on our area of interest. And this particular new network that we tried actually started to learn the shapes of what we masked out rather than the content. And that's a similar case. Now, we happen to know from the main knowledge that in this case, the shape doesn't actually matter. It doesn't correlate to the labels we want to detect. So yes, these problems happen uh, regularly. You've had experience working in both academia and the commercial world. What are the key differences you've found between doing data science or AI in an academic setting compared to doing it in the commercial world? Let me me narrow it down a bit because that's a very broad question. So I've been in commercial R&D with a focus on computer vision, and there's there's plenty of differences there, so we can start there. It, It will be different in other fields, or it will be different if you just apply AI as a component rather than doing the R&D on it. The key difference won't surprise you. So there's a business problem or a product vision. And unlike in academia, you can't really pick your own problem. So it's the use case that drives everything. Uh, having said that, you still have some freedom in that and, and go in the right direction or where, where the best business opportunity matches the technical feasibility. And there's many consequences of that that drive everything you do, basically. So the, the first one is your problem definition. Second one, and this is a bit more specific to computer vision, is the constraints that you can apply. The third one is more generic. I call it budget, but you should think of it as scalability, the deployment. A fourth one is data, your favorite topic. (laughs) And then there is context. Maybe we can go through them one by one, but that is something that's just not explored in academia. The first one I mentioned is the problem definition. And I know you've been talking with other guests about it as well. And it's a very general problem. In fact, it's not even specific to AI, but it's a real battle to find out what are the actual business objectives that are behind the stated objectives. And often the kind people in the business world, they think along with you and they basically say, well, the problem is that I want a solution and I don't have the solution. So you got to cut them back to, well, well, what's the actual problem? 
because they often don't understand that themselves. To be frank, even though I've been in this you know, business world for quite a while, it still surprises me that the business people don't understand their own problem. You ne- really need to guide them through it. And one of the reasons, I believe, is that in the business world, everything is quite fluid. Everything's negotiable. There's a large extent of hand-waving going on. But if we want to go down, because in the end, what we're going to end up with is a loss function that represents this business objective. Now, they're very far away, but you need to formalize what these problems are step by step. And I, I actually, I have a plan of steps to do that, which I try to apply if I can to basically ease people in and get a nice transition to the point where the business people can sign off on something that is formalized and where the technical people understand it enough that they can take it over. And and usually I would be the bridge between that. That's a bridge between a business problem and an analytics problem. Correct. So I, I use something which I call key technology indicators. So they're basically high level evaluation criteria that measure success. But they're not the actual evaluation criteria, but they're the ones that business people can understand. The simple ones are like, I want results within five seconds. So so the dimension there is time, but usually you get more involved in the use case. So uh, everybody likes to use accuracy, but accuracy itself as you know a technical measure often is not suitable. So you got to really go in depth. What does that mean? What you get then first, you got a way to assess the project success in the end. But usually those key technology indicators are not easy to quantify. You usually can't use them to run your experiments on. So you have to translate those to the proxies for those. And if you've made that translation, then basically you you have the business side and the technical side happy. Both of them can then do their work uh, on top of that. Could you give an example of one of the proxies? Well, the the proxies, uh, for example... Uh, the simple ones that everybody knows are recall and precision. That is very hard to understand for people on the business side. I mean, I pick a hard one here because there's immediately a trade-off in there. And trade-offs are not something that they're very comfortable with. But what you usually want to do, if that's a suitable measure, you're kind of going to fix one of those. So you're going to go to the use case and you can say, okay, well, maybe we can fix the precision uh, once at 50%, right? And translate it differently. And now you can use recall as a measure because one measure they can understand. And, and that is how you uh, marry those. But often you get more complex ones. So we've actually, this was not with ProofTech, but we had one where we actually considered patenting the evaluation criterion because it was quite convoluted, but it was representing what the business needed. And this had to do with tracking people, uh, a particular way of tracking people that was suitable for the applications that that business had. Did you end up patenting it in the end? To be frank, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, we might not have. So there, there are some enforceability issues with that. But the reason we considered it was that we thought actually we can even use it as a marketing thing. So we can set the baseline uh, with this and and basically force competitors to use this evaluation criterion, and which would give us an advantage because we've been thinking about it for a year longer than they have. Um, but sorry, I don't remember if it ended up. As someone from an academic background, what I'm hearing that you're saying is the way you look at things in the commercial or business world is in terms of patents 
how can you patent IP? Whereas in the academic world, a lot of the focus is on publishing research in academic papers. Is that a good analogy? Yes, in some ways. So I was previously working for Canon. So Canon is a top three in patenting in the world. So okay. everything, at least in the R&D departments, everything is about that. And you're absolutely right about saying that. So if we looked at the problem and we say, sometimes you would say, ah, we can solve that, but there's no way to patent it. Then we wouldn't do it. We would send it to another department, but not it would not be done by the R&D department. But the other side of the story, it's what you need to do for patents. It's not so different from publishing a paper. And in fact, it actually forces you to do better science because the thing about patents is it's not going to a peer review. It's going to a reviewer from the patent office. And he's basically, it's a standard response. He's going to say, the work that you did is obvious. And this is a particular legal term. The word reflects what it means. What you can't do in patents, you can't just take some existing techniques, put them together and say, okay, I got something I got something new, which you do, but that's not good enough for a patent. On the other hand, in academia, you can do that. And there's lots and lots of papers that do do that. <laughs> and maybe sometimes there's value in it, uh, but mm. I, I stop reading them myself. While in patents, you really have to focus on making a contribution yourself. So you can still put things together, but there needs to be something difficult about putting them together, right? Something that you need to be, you know, well, creative or intelligent about doing that. I call it the glue. You can patent the glue. So it's the spark of inspiration. Yes. Although, you know, it's 90% transpiration. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah. those are the academic papers that get the high citations, right? That would be the equivalent. Like. Larry Page and Sergey Brin's Google algorithm paper. Yeah, yeah. and there's still enough papers like that, but they're out of the maybe millions of papers that are being published. And so that, that really focuses you uh, on your contribution to the art. Once you've got the patent, do companies publish any of the research as research papers typically, or do you just keep that patent? locked away in a safe so that no one knows about it? Getting a patent is very hard and it takes a very long time. It can take like five years. So nobody is interested in the paper anymore. But what usually happens is you can file for the patent. So you have the application and it's kind of like timestamping it. And so once you've timestamped it, you can publish it. Now, Canon was very conservative in that. So we didn't do that that much, but other companies are much quicker in that. And then you can basically publish that paper. And it comes through through the community before the application is even made visible. And you often see that with things like Facebook or Google. Often there'll be research papers where every single researcher belongs to one of those companies. And you, you can, uh, so you can come back a year later and search for the applications and you'll often find that there's something underlying that paper or usually multiple papers. When you're performing commercial research, do you draw much on existing academic research, so on other journal articles? Yes. Now, things now are different from when I did my PhD. So right now, it's kind of the expectation that people publish their code. It's not required, but most people do. So it's even better than a paper, right? Yeah. You can go to the actual code, and they usually have a nice explanation of it as well. 
And uh, so that might be the first port of call. And then you say, well, that's, this is really going somewhere. Now, now I'm going to read the paper. So it's kind of the, the other way around. So there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff out there. And I also love to have a look at the site Papers with Code. I'm not sure if you're oh, yeah. familiar with that. Yeah, I know that. So it has some disadvantages, but so you have to be careful using it. But uh, on the one hand, it's great. It's, it's where everything comes together. You can see how they benchmarked uh, and you go straight into the GitHub from there. Mm -hmm. uh, or the, the papers on archive. So it's it's a fantastic world to navigate at the moment. One of my previous guests who works as an AI engineer for a metaverse company commented that he often would look at the code associated with research papers, but he often found that because the code was written by an academic and not a professional software developer, if he was going to incorporate that into his work, he had to rewrite it so that it was suitable for a production application. Is that a challenge that you've encountered? Throughout my career, well, definitely. So we've actually done a lot of work with universities and it may surprise you, but sometimes we wouldn't even run the code that produced. We could already see that's going to be a lot of work running this. Sometimes, you know, best case, we would use it as a reference. It would never come anywhere near a product. But then even the R&D code, so the commercial R&D code, which is closer to production quality, would usually be thrown away or, or also used as a reference. When we put something, and this is especially if we put something on a chip, so you can't really afford any mistakes on it, there might be three or four versions of the code before it ends up in a product. Now, nowadays with software, it's much shorter. And I have to say, I, I understand your guest's observation, but some of the stuff that is published in academia is actually pretty good. So the software quality has much improved what the PhD students do. So some stuff is actually usable and it can go in production, uh, maybe not on a chip, but if you run it on the cloud and you can easily replace it. And to be frank, we have some open source code that we use. You can't launch a project without having 300 open source dependencies and not many issues with that. However, some of the published things look interesting and they never make it because indeed the code is just not good enough to try it. And then, yeah, you can improve it or you can just take something that is slightly different, but does have working code. Yeah. <laughs> so you take the path of least resistance. I do find that sometimes these uh, academic publications or sort of the code for it is very much geared to the publication. And it's not so easy to repurpose it for something else. But, you know, that's that's not why these people made it. So if you yeah. want it, that should be your job. And if you're nice, you share that with the world as well. What programming languages do you typically use? As a CTO, and I'm, I'm pretty hands-on, I'm, I'm over everything, so I've used many. <laughs> so I actually, on a day, I can be in like three different languages. Python is the most important one for our backend. And of course, with the understanding that the libraries that we use, OpenCV, TensorFlow, Torch, where all the grunt work is done, are written uh, in other languages. So for our front end, we use TypeScript, which, which is basically JavaScript. And then we also have apps where we use Java and Swift. Then we, we are fully on the Amazon cloud. There's sometimes some weird Amazon languages 
that uh, we have to do. I think they're phasing them out, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. But the, the data science is part of it, is basically done in Python. Okay. For the data scientists who are listening, what are the most important Python packages from your point of view? So, well, I already mentioned OpenCV TensorFlow Torch, but we actually use a lot of Pandas as well. So Pandas is not, we don't actually do, we, we don't create models with it or anything, but to understand the data, Pandas is a, is a very powerful tool, the, the Swiss army knife for data. So we use that a lot. Does SKLearn come up? Yes, we use that as well. And again, it's not really for the actual models, but it has some tools in there, especially for evaluation metrics that we use in there. And sometimes we even use it for some image processing. So that's that's scikit image. Okay, I haven't used scikit image. I usually use I've used OpenCV for image processing though. One thing that I was thinking, often you hear about these academic commercial collaborations. And I've seen a couple of them in organizations that I've worked for, but I've never really seen them being all that successful. What are your thoughts on those? It's it's hard, but I have managed to do a couple of successful ones. And in fact, when I when I left the University of Amsterdam, where I did my PhD, actually one of the things I worked on got commercialized. So that's my experience from the university side. And after that, I've been doing it from the other side. <laughs> when I was at university, that was a bit ad hoc, and it, it was actually quite funny because I made something. I went on a sabbatical, and I came back after a few months. And the commercial guys that we were working with. They gave a very enthusiastic story about this product and they, they sold it to a big uh, German outfit and it was all great and it, it had a name and everything. And I said, wow, that, that's great. And it, this happened in a few months. I was away. can you show me a demo? Yeah. And they looked at me and they said, no, th- this is your stuff <laughs> that you made before you left. And, and that is the key point if you come from a university viewpoint. You gotta have those good sales guys, or maybe business development would be a better way to name them, because they can really match that and and reformulate what you did in ways that, as an academic, you just can't. Because as an academic, you can't to say, ah, yeah, but this and this and but and no, that's not exactly how it is. So they skim over all of that, get the essence out, package it in a way that companies say, oh. They express it as the value for the company, right? They're not going to talk about CNNs or the technology behind it, but they kind of say, this is going to be the value for you as a company. And that's how it's done. Now, they productized it. They actually took the prototype. I just told you, don't do that. But they did take the university code. But I checked on them last year, and it's still a successful business. They pivoted into completely different things now. But but it's a company with 50 people now that basically came out of that original product. That's pretty good. That's a very successful spin-off, yes. Where I've seen them be unsuccessful is when it sort of ends up in this sort of buck-passing exercise. The organization wants the academics to come up with brilliant stuff, and then the academics want to be told what to do by the organization, and it just ends up with money being thrown at the academics and everyone trying to pretend that nothing's happening and yeah, it gets swept under the rug eventually. Uh, that's an interesting experience because uh, when I come from the commercial side, mm. I see it as exactly the opposite. Okay. 
going back to your question, what makes a successful one? You actually need an overlap between the research interests of the, the university group or the individuals and the potential to solve that problem for the company. But it requires the company to be quite mature in thinking about that they're dealing with R&D there. So there's no certainty. So if they can't accept the risk, then there's something is wrong. You shouldn't deal with a university for that. Or there, there are special departments in universities that do those things, but not with a research partner. On the other hand, so what happens if you're not aligned? My, my experience is because there's some very good salespeople amongst the professors as well. So they're just going to tell the company, yeah, we can do that to whatever they say. And then once they cut the contract in, they just kind of shape the, the problem until it fits whatever they intended to do for their research. Yes. And that is not necessarily a happy marriage either. Yes. So if you can get those things clear from the start, but it requires from the company's side to understand the academics to some so if if the academia says well this is the problems we want to pursue this is what we're interested in they have to be able to understand that enough to say ah it can match this range of problems and if you get that together then you can actually have a very successful collaboration because everybody's aligned i think that's an interesting point that idea of the skill set matching a particular range of problems because one of the things that when I'm teaching data science, I always tell my students the business problem has to drive the solution, not the other way around. But you also have that situation where you've got someone who specializes in a particular skill set. Like, for example, you specialize in computer vision. It yeah. would be a waste for you to go to work for a company that wasn't trying to solve computer vision problems. So I think even though the problem has to drive the solution, people with a particular skill set need to match their skill set with a company that requires that skill set to solve the range of problems they're looking at. Uh, yes, although you always have to be careful because maybe a computer vision approach can be applied to a non-computer vision problem, right? And if you want to do that, actually going to a university would be the right thing to do because they can think at a bit more abstract level to jump between domains. But yes, in general, you're right. How would you apply a computer vision solution to a non-computer vision problem? So in the end, in computer vision, well, let's say an image. You have two-dimensional data where, where the elements of the data are related to each other. So if you have other problems like that, you actually can call them an image, right? Even though it might not be the traditional image uh, as we know it. And there might be other problems like that. So sorry, from the top of my mind, I can't think of any. But there, there is uh, often migration between topics and computer vision for itself borrows a lot from natural language processing. Yes. So basically, if you want to know what's going to happen two years from now in computer vision, just check the state of the art in natural language processing. Okay. So natural language, you've got a one-dimensional sequence of letters, whereas in computer vision, you've got a two-dimensional matrix of pixels. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Or at least, yes. Yeah, or at least two-dimensional, yeah. <laughs> possibly three if you've got color. Yes. So, so that's why uh, these techniques can't be used one-on-one. -on -one. But you see, for example, the transformers that, that have shown great success uh, in natural language processing, they are now, they already have been <laughs> transformed, if you like, into fission transformers. And they're not exactly the same. 
but the concepts behind them, the, the, the idea behind them are the same. So at a very high level, they look at the context uh, and the self-attention within parts of, of the local. Uh, and, and that can be a word in a sentence or it can be a spot in an image. And that's how these things transition. Now, not, not everything may map, so I'm not sure. So we, the convolutional neural networks, I think they're used in natural language processing as well. But those might actually have gone the other way around and being applied to those situations. Because I always thought that image processing was the easier use case and that it went from image processing to natural language. So it's interesting that you say it's the other way oh, around. Tell me, tell me why, because I would think that natural language processing is much easier. It just feels like there's more image processing use cases or successful image processing use cases, but maybe that's just from an outside observer point of view rather than an insider point of view. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. So I think image processing is very hard. And when you start, so you, you said natural language processing, you start with letters, but actually you start with words. So there's already so much semantic information and basically you've narrowed it down so much already. Well, when you get an image, you have all these pixels that by themselves are meaningless. And then you have these groups of pixels, you have to give them a meaning. But if the light is slightly different, these pixels completely transform, even though what you see has the same meaning. Those kind of problems, you, you don't really have them in natural language. That's why I think it's a much harder problem. What you're just saying then, it reminds me of that example I've seen on the internet where people get an image and they change one pixel and it causes an object detector to think a dog's a banana or something insane. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and this this is very hard. And so if we go back to the first question that you had, so in computer vision, constraints are very important. And I actually, I have, well, it's not formal, but I have a checklist right, of constraints that can apply to a problem. And there's like 40 of them that, that generally happen. And for when I go to a new domain, I actually go over all these 40 and check, well, which ones do apply? Not all of them apply. But you often end up with like 20 constraints that you need to put in place just to be able to tackle this computer vision problem in some way. Could you give us some examples of some of those constraints? At the extreme side of computer vision, you have machine vision. So that's where you control everything. You control the lighting, for example. And lighting is a very important one. Not, not only can it blind your cameras, that's, of course, you can't do anything with that, but it can completely change how you represent what is happening in the real world. What you can do more uh, in the wild, as we call it. So that, that's the topic I work on, where you don't have a whole lot of control over those circumstances. You can still do things about that. So you you can provide some shade. So for example, if you take images, you tell people, do it in the shade. Do, don't, everybody knows it. Don't take photos against direct sunlight. <laughs> yeah. So that's already constraining it a bit, but you can do much more with that. And in fact, what we found, so one of our applications of proof tech is where people take the images. So they go around the car and take images. And if that's the brief we give them, it's going to be a complete disaster. We, we can't do much with that from a computer vision perspective. So we put constraints on them. We tell them, how do you walk along the car? We actually have a little neural network that tells them how close they should be to the car and make sure they have the right angle on things. Because as soon as you change the angle, you get all sorts of 3D effects that make the complexing, well, not infinite, but a whole lot more complex. 
And what you, for example, see in the manual, so nobody reads those pages. But if you buy a Canon product, there's a lot of exclusions. So simple ones to say, don't use this at night. Or sometimes it says, yes, you can use it at night. So those are all constraints under which the application is working, has been tested. And maybe you can try what happens if you don't put a constraint in place, right? What happens if you do use it at night? Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But that's not what the work has been focusing on. And when we look at product releases, we often say, okay, we apply those 20 constraints. And in version two, we kind of lift some of those constraints. In version three, we lift more of those constraints. But at some point, we reach the limit. It says, okay, now certain constraints need to be in place. Otherwise, the problem is too open-ended. And that is actually what you spend a lot of time on. And in terms of evaluation criteria, so constraints are not evaluation criteria, but they're kind of hanging in the same space. So they're, they're very important. And when we go to difference between business and academia, this is an important difference because you can't pick your constraints. You have to negotiate this, what, what is reasonable for users. You can't just determine them. And it's pro- completely valid to do that in academia. But if we put the wrong constraints in, then nobody will buy your product. With these neural networks that underpin ProofText products, there must have been a point where you just had no data to work with. How do you deal with the situation where you have absolutely no data at all? I mean, how did you create your original data set? Yeah, absolutely. So first day of ProofTech, we had zero data. It didn't scare me because it was not the first time I was in that situation. Uh, in fact, I did my PhD in the 90s. So back then, there were no standard data sets. Uh, in fact, I, I think there was a standard one, one standard image, Lena. Yeah. Uh, but, but I was in video, so I uh, couldn't even use that. <laughs> um, so I've always been working on making my own data sets. I can't even think of a situation where I started out with a usable data set. If you're lucky, there is data, but often you don't have any data. And if there is data, there are no labels. We, we just talked about that these, all these pixels are pretty meaningless. So without labels, you're, you're really flying blind. You're not going to make any sense of it. And then if you do have labels, in, in yeah. a very lucky situation, they're inconsistent. And actually, usually you end up throwing them away and relabeling them. So creating your own data set, uh, it depends a bit on the situation. I've done a lot of work in surveillance, so security settings. So it's very hard to get your hands on actual footage. So we actually reenact. So sometimes we walk ourselves in front of video cameras. And we've even had with a talent agency, we hired a bunch of actors <laughs> to walk around, dress in different things, etc. Mm-hmm. This was a particular topic that we were doing. I can tell you, uh, I, I understand now what's going on on a film set because the logistics are enormous. But basically, we did a couple of days of recording like that just to create our own data set and, and have that variety in it. What we're doing now, uh, for uh, we were interested in damages. So we actually went to a yard near the airport and we just photographed uh, a lot of rental cars. Fortunately, they do have a lot of damages. Initially, I, I also sometimes go around in my neighborhood here. I, I don't know what it is. I think there's bad drivers in, in my neighborhood. There's a lots of interesting damages on the cars. And that's how we start things. And we can build our firm model. Now, at the same time, and I guess in parallel, I worked with a company that 
that had this concept of a P0. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's a common term. Have, have you heard of it? No, I haven't. And P stands for product. So it's, it's, it's product zero. So it's product zero doesn't have any fancy data models in it or so. Its only purpose is to collect data. And I would say it goes into the data stream of, of some, some use case and it taps it off. What they were very good at is making that P0 very nice so that people were compelled to use it. Because that's the whole point. Use our P0. In return, you give us your data. We start collecting it, or maybe we ask some questions, so we, we get some labels from it, and then we can power up models. And once you have a first model that is halfway decent, now you can show and convince people, say, hey, well, look, this is what we can do with it. It's not quite there yet, but there's a reward if you share your data with us, if you help us with this. And it keeps growing and growing, and you, you get this cycle of getting data in. What it means compared to, to academia or, or, or data science where you have big data sets already is there is a bit of bias in your data set, inevitably, because you're creating it. You're going with the flow, so to speak, where you can get the data. So it's not necessarily a distribution of the real world. So that's one of the, the dangers that you have there. I do indeed find that hard. So now we have a good model and we want to make it better. So false positives are very easy to get feedback on. But missed detections, basically, you don't know what you missed. Uh, you don't get feedback on it usually. So those are the hard ones when you have kind of this biased data set acquisition approach. If you've got missed detections, would you even know that you had a missed detection in order to record it as a false negative? Absolutely not. And in fact, what we see, we two months ago, we, we made a new model. Uh, so not just another iteration, but actually we started from scratch with it. We ran it on our data sets and we have false positives. So we look at the false positives, except they're not false positives. They're true detections. We just hadn't labeled them. In fact, we, can, we have a one very small data set, a test set, and it's small because it's very expensive to make that we've gone through multiple times and say, after going through it four times, the fifth time, we still find new things that we have missed before as humans. Wow. And this is, we, we've basically caught with the microscope of these things and we still find new things in there. And, and just for context, when I say that we detect damage, this is not a big crash. We're detecting very small damages that can be a few millimeters, maybe wow. half a centimeter. And that's, that's exactly why we make these things, because it's too hard for humans. A, a human can do it, but not on a scale. Uh, and this is very common. People can do these tasks for about 10 minutes, and after that, they tune out. And that's what makes it so hard to do that labeling. So yeah, we don't know what we missed. I was going to ask, do humans do your labeling? Yes. Or is, so there's no magic way of doing it other than humans? Correct. I found when I was building machine learning models in a particular organization I was working in, the hardest thing was always convincing people to label the data set for me and you could never get it done. And that's why, so we haven't cracked that, but we're trying to similar to that P0 concept, you have to reward them for it. And I, I don't mean playing a, a music or whatever, but getting them to have business value for that. So in our case, say, well, if you do label this, 
we actually automatically generate reports for you that you need. And that's how we're trying to convince them to, to give that kind of feedback. Yeah, I've heard some people have tried using things like Amazon Mechanical Turk and I've never used it myself, but I've heard the results you get from it are terrible. I've, I think it depends on what you try to do. If you want to label cats versus dogs, I'm sure it works fine. Yeah. But in, in our case, experts do not agree on what the label should be. But there's no way a Mechanical Turk is going to do it. And in fact, so we, we do use parties overseas, so basically low-cost countries, but they're not random people. These people have been trained for a few days uh, in order to, to do this. The, the guidelines that we provide them, there's like 25-page guidelines, right? Now, there's a lot of pages because there's images in there, but there's a lot in it and it's still not enough. So that, that is, it's worth spending a lot of time on that. With the products that you're developing, I mean, obviously, these are products that are used by real people in the end. At what point do you get your potential end users involved in looking at your products? There's two parts to the, to the product, right? There is how people interact with it. And then there is technically giving the, the, basically the chops to do that properly. I, I think this was mentioned in one of your other podcasts, but I'm a big fan of the Lean Startup and the minimum viable product. And you shouldn't take it literally, but there's lots of good ideas in it. And it, it actually has a bit of a scientific basis. And one of the lessons for that is get early user feedback. You don't have to build the actual product as you envision it. It's very easy to do nowadays with clickable prototypes. So anybody can use Figma. You don't need to be a technical person for it. You basically can give some select users a clickable prototype. And you get a lot of feedback on that, about what I like and not. Uh, in our case, I always work business to business. And most of the discussion is about how is that going to affect the workflow? How does it fit your workflow? And those things surface. And in fact, some questions you could ask them and that you don't get a good answer to, like we discussed in the beginning, if you show them this clickable prototype, then they'll say to you, oh, no, that's not how we do it. This is how we do it. And you finally get your answer. So they're very powerful. And that's what we do. We, we're actually, one of my staff is making one right as we speak, which we've used before. We make a second version of it to get more feedback from our clients to say, how are you going to use our technology? Because the, the key component that we're working on in parallel, that actually hasn't changed. But how we present it to the users is going to be different based on the feedback. Does knowing your product will ultimately be used by real people impact the way you look at AI product development right from the beginning? Yes. And that simply comes back to those evaluation criteria. I go very far with that. And it's probably most people don't. But I really think about how is this going to be used? Basically, what is the UX that's going to be on top of the, the technical components? And then work your way back. And a simple example of that is, let's, let's say you have rankings and in academia, uh, they'll show you, ah, this, this is our top five or top 10 ranking result. I, on the other hand, might look at top nine or top 12. So that's very simple. Why nine or 12? Why not a round number? Well, usually we present things in a three by three grid or a four by three grid. Oh, yeah. right? That's what the user is going to see. They're not going to say 10 results. They're going to see that. Ah. 
but that's a small shift, right? But there is bigger ones. So a very interesting example is actually coming from our live system. And we got some feedback. And it says the false positives are no good. It says, well, yeah, we know that. Nobody likes false positives. No, 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 that's not what I mean. It turns out there is acceptable false positives and non-acceptable false positives. So it's, it's not so easy <laughs> to deal with, but it's very important to the user acceptance of your system. And we're trying to take some measures to deal with that. And, and when I heard that, it reminded me of something from a very long time ago. So this 25 years ago, a television manufacturer, they added voice recognition to their televisions. You could give them some very simple commands. I mean, back then, this was very advanced at the time. And they had an avatar. Uh, so, so a little human that would then respond to your voice. But the voice recognition wasn't that good. So it messed up. People didn't like it. And the interesting thing that I did is then, then they replaced the avatar. So the actual technology, exactly the same. Instead of a, a little virtual human, it was now a dog. And all of a sudden, people accepted it and said, yeah, this is great. I said, well, what about it? it doesn't, it's not always coming right. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. But everybody knows dogs don't understand that. <laughs> uh, so no change in technology, just in how it's presented can make a huge difference. I keep thinking of, do you remember Clippy, the Microsoft Word virtual assistant, and everyone hated Clippy? And yet we're all happy using virtual assistants now. It's just there was something about Clippy. <laughs> yes, well, I, I viewers can't see it, but I see some nostalgia in your, in your, on your face. <laughs> so what do you believe are the most valuable skills for data scientists who are looking to build a career in developing commercial AI-based technologies? Well, continuing on the topic that we just talked about, I actually think the data preparation and all that preparation that you do is more important than the actual data science that you do on it. And, and partly this is because we now have AutoML and, and all those things that can do a lot of what, what used to be manual work. But if you put the wrong data in it, or you put the wrong evaluation criteria in, they're not going to help you. And I think that is where maybe that's not a new skill, but more focus needs to be on that. And I noticed that, that people in academia and data scientists get very distracted by getting 0.01 more out of their model. Yes. In my experience, and Andrew Young, Lending AI, famous for his Stanford course, uh, he, he's actually got a presentation in which he backs that up with data and he can show that with an amount of effort spent on improving the model and getting 0.02 improvement, uh, less effort spent on massaging the data a bit better gives him a 10 percentage points improvement. That's where I think data scientists should focus on. Now, I know in the world, it, it doesn't happen in my world, but I've seen in data science, there's data engineers that are separate from data scientists. I don't completely understand the difference, <laughs> <laughs> but where I did see it, I would say, let's give the data engineer a bit of training. You get better results than training the data scientists to be data engineers, partly because they don't want to. So if you're a pure data scientist, you have to be very good or you know you might be surpassed by the data engineers that have a bit of additional training. Another point is look at the actual data. So that's not a skill, but that should be a habit. 
I do find even in my team, I have to tell people they come with all these numbers, et cetera, says, yes, but have you gone to the actual data and looked at it? Because we, as I told you, we, we don't have a distribution of the actual world, right? So there might be something wrong with the distribution. Your, your numbers are not going to tell you that. You have to pass some human judgment on that. But also we, we often work in a feature space and we might not have the right features. So you have to go back and look there rather than spend months and months on squeezing something out, something impossible. There's a paper that I found that another guest pointed me in the direction of, and the people who wrote the papers actually demonstrated how you could create all these different data sets with exactly the same summary statistics. <laughs> and, you know, you've got some that are just, you know, straight lines of data type thing, yeah. but they've actually, one of them is actually a dinosaur. <laughs> so, and, and I actually show that to my class because the point I want to make is, if you're just looking at the means and standard deviations, it does not tell you that you've got a dinosaur there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, make that a habit. Oh, of course, you still you should still look at the numbers as well. Oh yes, definitely. So don't, don't lose that. Yeah. But, but look out for the data source. So so the other thing is, it doesn't happen in AI that often, but in more traditional data science. I noticed that some data scientists, even fresh ones from uni, they can't really code, uh, which it surprised me. I, I hope uh, that the new outtake is not like that anymore. But even if they can code, software engineering skills can be quite useful. And I think you, you talked about your own journey on that and that it's a bit of a revelation. So I'm not saying data scientists should be software engineers, but some of the thinking in there can be very useful. And what surprised me when I worked with data science students is for, for me, coming from a computer science background, there's not really a difference between scripts and programs. And that's because I learned how to program and hence scripting comes naturally. Don't need to make any effort for it. What I hadn't realized is that the other way around is not obvious at all. I often, we often start out with scripts, right? You're just toying around with things. Scripts are much better than a completely software engineered thing. But at some point you say, oh yeah, let's take this to the next level. And you turn it into more software engineered code. You can do repeatable experiments, parameterize it and everything like that. And I noticed that these data scientists weren't able to do that. And it's not just ability. They had never thought about doing that. It's not a hard skill to learn. If you can code basic software engineering, you should be able to pick it up quite quickly. I think it's because a lot of data scientists do all their work in Jupyter Notebooks. So they've never had that experience of actually working with direct script files. Yeah. So I would encourage them to take the scripts and turn them into code. The actual programming won't be that big a deal. And you now have Copilot, et cetera, who, who can help you a lot with that. But what, what you need to do is basically know what do I want to achieve with this and somehow express that. Knowing what you now know about startup life, would you recommend it to our listeners? <laughs> yes, I would recommend it because uh -huh. otherwise I would, well, would leave it, of course. But it's not for the faint at heart. I had actually some discussion with our investors because uh, data scientists have found that the best age uh, for startup founders is like 42 
it's it's a beautiful number, of course. That shouldn't deter anybody young or young or old. But what it does tell me as an interpretation is that getting some experience under your belt in a bigger company probably helps you a lot when you do your startup. So technically, you might be ready for it. So let's say you you focus, you're a CTO and you focus on the AI part of it. But there is a lot of organizational stuff that you may not have been exposed to as a younger person. And that's coming on you, right? Everything comes on you when you're when you're founders of the business until you're big enough to hire specialists for that. I wouldn't really trade in my my experience at larger companies. I'm happy for that to be part of my journey. Maybe I should have left a little bit earlier. But at the same time, it's very exciting to work at startups because of the flexibility you have. I have actually done a release while on the phone with a client who, who had an issue with something. So you can just do that. Those are the less interesting things, of course, but you can basically hear something from a client and say, okay, yeah, that's an interesting problem. Let's do something about it. There's no paperwork involved. You just do it. There's no skunk works or everything is skunk works. Being that close to customers makes it very rewarding to do those things, which in bigger companies, you're usually very far away from customers. So that's the part that I would recommend to pursue. That statistic you gave about how the optimal age to start a startup is 42, I've heard that statistic before. And what I think is interesting is, are you familiar with Ericsson's stage of life work? No. So Ericsson was a psychologist and he basically divided the human lifetime into all these different stages. And there are different things that you achieve at different stages. So it's starting with basically all the different stages of infancy. Then the stages after that are basically consistent with primary school, secondary school and stuff like that. But once you get beyond 18, he divides adult life into three stages, early adulthood, middle adulthood and late adulthood. Late adulthood is basically your retirement stage. So let's just forget about that. (laughs) (laughs) But with the early and middle adulthood, early adulthood is basically from when you're about 18 until you're about 40. Mm. And that's doing all the things that you need to do to set yourself up for the rest of your life, getting an education, uh, getting experience working in jobs. Uh, If you're interested in having a family, finding someone, you know, things like that. And then at around age 40, it transitions into middle adulthood, which is when you're doing whatever it is that's going to achieve your life's purpose. It might be raising a family or it might be starting a startup. So it just felt to me when I heard that statistic that 42 is consistent with where Ericsson puts the start of the middle adulthood phase. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And you might be right there. Listeners who are young shouldn't be discouraged with that. But what, what I think might happen is you might actually be well suited to bring a startup to a certain level and then merge with a bigger company for the time where you, where you need that that life experience. So that's another way to do it. And there, there are advantages to being young as well, because you have more energy. So to be frank, I can't I can't do it. Uh, I can't pull an all-nighter anymore. I, I could never pull an all-nighter even when I was in high school. Oh, okay. 
What final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? Yeah, I would repeat. So don't take the data as a given. Don't take it as a fix. You can make your own data set. I think with the language AI breaking through recently to the bigger public, there's been a lot of discussion that these engines are basically stuck in their feature space. So people call it like they're not conscious. That's their way of saying it. They can't go and sense a new data, right? And they can't, and maybe they shouldn't. But as a data scientist, you can do that for them. And you can do that in a responsible way. So that's what I would recommend to pay attention to. For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. So my my name is pretty unique, so I will be easy to find. And yeah, if you want to chat more about AI or startups, I'm happy to do that. And if you're in Sydney, you can find me at several events as well that are happening here in the ecosystem. And I'll look to your LinkedIn page in the show notes. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for the interesting questions. I had a great time. I learned a lot from this. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.